0: It's the PaddleWoo Podcast. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the PaddleWoo Podcast. I am your host, Eric Antonson, and today's guest on the show is the CEO of the Waterman League and the Stand Up World Tour, Tristan Boxford. He is here today to discuss the 2016 season, which was cut short, and what's coming up for the 2017 season. Some interesting, awesome changes coming our way. It looks like it's going to be a full year on the tour. So anyone who's a fan of paddle surfing has got to love that news. And he is here to discuss all of that. This show was recorded about six weeks ago, and I have been incredibly slammed down here. I'm running way behind, so I apologize for that. I've got a lot of shows in the can, some big fun things happening. Um, So I apologize for the delay, and it looks like things are getting Back to uh, to normal here. <clears throat> if you shot if you've, if you have shot me an email uh, and I haven't responded, I apologize. We've been running retreats. I've been doing a lot of coaching over the last bit, and with the holidays, it has been tough to keep up with everything. Um, I'm gonna have to figure out a way to make all of this scalable soon, and that is coming. So, thanks for hanging in there, and you guys are gonna enjoy this show. A couple notes before we jump in to the podcast. I have started recording for a new podcast that is called the Progression Project, and I love doing this podcast. I've absolutely loved it, and over the last I don't know three to six months, as much fun uh, as I'm having doing the paddle surfing portion, I'm loving getting the stories, the inspiration from guys like Kyle Lenny and Jamie uh, Jamie Mitchell, and. I wanted to be able to expand that past just paddle surfing. So the Progression Project podcast, yeah, it's still me. It's still the same type of conversation, except it is no longer just paddle surfing. And I've restarted recording those. I've got four already uh, recorded. Um, Josh Waitskin, the eight-time U.S. chess champion, a good friend of mine. He's been coming down here. We've been training together for the last, I don't know, 18 months or so. He has uh, just recorded, that'll be the first episode released. He is a US chess champion. The movie, Searching for Bobby Fischer, is about Josh's early years. He went on to become world champion at Tai Chi Push Hands and then uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belt now. His new passion is paddle surfing. That's where our commonality uh, is. And uh, he's an incredible human being and very stoked that he is on the show. Uh, Aaron Pearsall, also an incredible human, um, three time Olympic gold medalist in the backstroke, still current world record holder. Had the fortune, good fortune of being able to surf and hang out with Aaron for a few years. And so uh, he agreed to do the show. G Love, Garrett Dutton has recorded. He's another incredible dude, good friend. Um, and that show is, I mean, that's going to be really fun to release. Very different from anything I've done before uh, with Garrett, but uh, the, his stories are just incredible. And then the author of probably my favorite book for the last year, Anders Erickson, has also recorded. So those will all be coming out over the next uh, probably six weeks, so stay tuned for that. They'll be released on the progression on, on the website, progressionproject.com. Uh, so uh, please feel free to shoot me any feedback, suggestions, ideas. I love getting it. And uh, thank you for always, uh, um, you know, connecting. I appreciate it. We have our foundation training retreat week coming up. It is February 25th to March 4th. And there are still a couple spots left, two or three spots left. So shoot me an email, E-R-I-K at progressionproject.com if you would like details on the retreat and that's going to be amazing. Eric Goodman is the creator of foundation training. He trains Dane Reynolds, Kelly Slater. He's trained the Lakers. Foundation training is, I mean, it's been very important in my life. I, I give it credit for keeping me out of spinal fusion, fusion surgery. Um, I apologize for the voice, guys. has been running super hard uh, the last few weeks. <clears throat> so if you're interested in coming down to hang out with us, uh, it'll be the foundation training team, about four guys, and the Progression Project crew uh, that we do for our paddle surf camps. So it'll be surfing and foundation training. And last note here, a lot of you are waiting on my thoughts on the L41 Pop Dart. I just dropped that yesterday. That's on progressionproject.com. Also a video of the board and some smaller surf, so check that out. Um, As always, hit me up with questions or insight. I appreciate it and uh, enjoy the conversation with Tristan Boxford, CEO of the Waterman League. All right, guys.
1: All right, Tristan Boxford, thank you very much for being on the show today. How are you?
2: I'm doing great, thank you. It's great to be on the show. How you doing?
1: Yeah, long time coming, right? We tried to put this together a few months ago, and I'm glad that it, it finally came off, so it's going to be fun to get into this. Exactly. Um, so let's start off with where the World Tour is at this year. I've got a whole slew of stuff I'd like to chat with you about, but let's get the important stuff out of the way. What's going to happen with the World Tour uh, in the next year? You
2: know, it's uh, it's an incredibly interesting time for us. We obviously built this, uh, you know, we launched back in 2009 with the Contenders uh, back in Tahiti. Uh, and then we by 2010, we had a fully fledged world tour, you know, in, in five different countries. And it just kept on growing and snowballing. And, uh, you know, it was incredibly exciting times. Um, but it also got to the point where, you know, it was a business that was a giant global business uh, built by a core team um, with no kind of startup cap. Or, or kind of growth capital um, so we got to a point where we realized you know we had to make a step change in the business in order to, to really capitalize not only on what is being created but create a solid future for both the platform and the sport um, so you know that's what we've been working hard on over the last two years in parallel to obviously keeping the tour and the series going um, and it's been a challenging last couple of years but you know we're, it's an exciting moment for us because we uh, through the process of uh, exploring lots of different avenues of how to move forward Uh, We identified, uh, you know, initially an individual uh, who's a passionate stand-up paddler and surfer. um, You know, independent kind of investor uh, person uh, who then brought in a a large multinational venture capital firm as well. um, Who saw the potential of what we've built. uh, Saw our vision of of where we're headed and and said, you know, this is an exciting project and we want to jump on board. So, you know, it was really an an ideal situation where... Uh, we met the right people took a little longer than we had hoped uh, but we're now in a situation where uh, we we closed our investment and we 're building our our global team and and you know we have uh, some pretty big uh, developments coming over the next three years
1: amazing uh, so one quick note your email is chiming through maybe you could turn off your yeah your email client there um man <laughs> So, can you talk to the type of investment that you've received, the the time frame that the World Tour has now to operate without being under financial stress?
2: Yeah, I mean, we 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 got a lean investment in some respects. You know, we're not looking at this in a WSL kind of strategy of of throw money at it for many years. You know, and kind of a a a, a difficult commercial model is how I look at it with with what the WSL have. We've been really careful to. To identify how we can make this a sustainable business right away Uh, and our partners are helping us craft that too and you know their background is is media and entertainment as well as festivals Um, and you know with a real heavy weight on on media properties so you know they're very experienced on on how to build businesses of this kind Um, so they bring in a lot of uh, you know a lot of that kind of power to the table as well Uh, but in terms of the actual investment itself it's enough to uh, you know get us all straight obviously. Uh, build our global team and, and operate for, we have a good runway to operate now, um, you know, but we're definitely looking to make this a sustainable business as quickly as possible, so you know, uh, and that being said as well our partners, have, you know, the venture capital firm is a, it's a huge funder. Uh, I mean, they own, you know, the, the majority stakeholders in legendary films in Hollywood and all kinds of different investments across the globe that are significantly larger than the Waterman League, um, so we're honored at uh, the fact that actually the the lead partner of of that fund is, uh, actually on our executive board. So, you know, while we're a lot smaller concern for them, um, it's pretty significant that he's on the board. So it's something that they're very much behind. Uh, the investment is enough to really get us going and charging and moving in the direction with our, with our five year plan now kind of well in place. Uh, and we have a, you know, the backup of this, uh, strong force behind us, uh, which brings not only the, you know, kind of financial capabilities, but also strategic partnerships. You know, these guys are exceptionally well-placed, uh, particularly across Asia but globally as well uh, to where we can leverage a lot of their relationships and partnerships to really grow uh,
1: the events that way too so it's a it's a good re- revenue generation tool beyond just uh, investment funds and so by the way you're talking here I assume that there's some level of anonymity requested by the folks involved um, we're actually
2: launching we're putting out a uh, an official press release in the next couple of days here it's waiting for it's going through the legal right now um, but I'm happy to share. Uh, it's basically AID uh, Partners, which is a large investment group in, in, uh, based out of Hong Kong. Uh, and our other lead investor also on the executive board is a gentleman called Darren Shaw, uh, okay. who's a, a passionate stand-up paddler as well. So those are, those are the kind of investment partners. Um, but one thing that they were really adamant about, which is, which is, I think, very positive for the sport and the future of the sport, is that, uh, that we maintain majority share of the company. Um, so that we can kind of keep the integrity of the product because, you know, at the end of the day, we know the product better than outside investors, um, but they can really help us from a commercial standpoint and from, you know, creating the right, the right way forward and, you know, to make it commercially viable while we can really maintain the, the authenticity and legit, legitimacy of the product that we're creating.
1: Well, that's excellent news. Uh, as a huge fan of the sport, the World Tour has been missed this year, and so I'm excited to see it come back do you have a first date is it going to open up again in uh sunset next year
2: yeah absolutely we've got a provisional calendar in place um we're you know majority of the events are all locked in already uh we're just doing some fine tuning and tweaking so we'll be re- releasing uh, an updated version in the next well this week uh and then with a final calendar you know at the latest by mid-month so that you know everybody's got a lot of runway to plan and Excellent. you know the fortunate thing is the contracts that we've set up uh with our new partners we kind of revamped all aspects of the business model because there was you know a lot of things that were done in the growing process where you know there's a lot of bro deals a lot of different ways that we structured business arrangements which you know actually shot us in the foot a lot of times um so you know we've been careful to kind of restructure a lot of those partnerships we've taken a lot more ownership of as far as our events globally um so that we can have that control and be kind of the master of our destiny in the sense of you know there's not There's not things that can derail you like we've had in Brazil in the past, like we've had in various regions around the world. So, um, you know, that's going to be a big savior for us. But as far as the the calendar is concerned, yeah, it was a a huge disappointment for us not to, uh, you know, not to be able to complete a full year this year. You know, we had an amazing event at Sunset in terms of conditions, um, but it's definitely been a bootstrapped year where we, you know, it's a transition year where we knew what we had to do. We had to get to the end of it. Uh, which we've done. And rather than kind of killing ourselves to try to eke out a couple more events that we felt that was substandard compared to what we wanted to deliver, we, wanted, we rather wanted to consolidate, bring everything in and then produce a, a revitalized and, and re-energized kind of new look world tour for next year.
1: Excellent. Um, what about athlete back uh, pay? Um, has everyone been taken care of? Is that in the works?
2: Absolutely. That was all taken care of. In fact, we actually got pre-investment dollars uh, from our investors as a show of good faith because they, you know, obviously agreed with us that the first priority was to get that taken care of. So, you know, everybody, every uh, debtor we've had has been paid. Um, Yeah, we we got non-niggling things out there, which is great. You know, obviously it's something that should never have happened, but it was always my commitment to, you know, that we stood, stood firm to that commitment. We just had to get to where we, where we could actually get into that position. So that was the first uh, order of business with the
1: new company. So, you know, that has all been taken care of. Can you talk to where any of the events will be this year? Absolutely. Um,
2: you know, Sunset's locked in. Uh, that's kind of a, a legacy event for us. Obviously, it's the 12th to the 24th of February. Uh, so that'll be the World Tour opener for the year. Um, the second event of the year is the one I'm uh, I'm working on now. I'm not, you know, I'm I'm passionate about Tahiti, and and I believe in uh, the significance of Tahiti Mubata the Tour. But, you know, one thing that our new commercial partners are uh, extremely uh, strict on is is you know not entering any into any uh, kind of loss-making endeavors. <laughs> so, right. you know, Tahiti is is a challenge commercially. Um, uh, the country itself is not a, you know it's, it's tough for them to sustain an event all by themselves in terms of from a commercial standpoint and from an international uh, standpoint the commercial interest in it is limited because it's a small territory so it's it's an unfortunate uh, scenario that as far as raising money but at the same time there's there's some real hope there to, to bring it back and I'm you know we have some really great partners there uh, that really want to bring it back so I'm working on Tahiti as a stop too We have a couple other venues that are kind of pitching to, to be part of that. Uh, that kind of window of opportunity which is the kind of may to may to july kind of window um it looks as though we'll be heading to japan oh excellent Um, yeah i'm going to be there in in a week's time just to kind of meet with the government the government and all the officials over there so um you know it'll be separate from the race event there actually in a different venue um but uh again could be a really really exciting event Uh, and then the USA event is, is one, I, I can't spill any beans about it right now. We had a venue that we were looking at, but there was some issues with congestion and, and, uh, works and all this kind of stuff that was going on at the venue, um, you know, over the next three years, in fact. So (laughs) it's sort of, while you know, while it might've been livable in year one, you know, the idea is obviously, you know, we want to grow significantly over the next three years. Um, so it was something that we've been taking into consideration. And then another opportunity came up that would be, uh, for me, it would be a really interesting opportunity because it's a major market. Um, that I, yeah, I, I will let you guys know. You'll get the first scoop on that. Um, but we're just waiting for them to, to kind of agree on the permit side of things so that we can move forward on that. Uh, and then we have um, Tenerife at the end of the year.
1: Oh, excellent! It seems to me that the first requirement of any location would be incredible internet and and uh, infrastructure. Because if you're going to run an event, like I was incredibly disappointed when the Tahiti event, what was it, ran two years ago and there was no live feed. And there was right. so little content that came out of it. My big question at the time was how do you benefit? How does the tour benefit when you're spending so much money to go to a location and then you don't, you're not getting anything back? I mean, the way that I've always tried to run my projects is how do I get the most amount of media out of the smallest budget? Because I don't really have a budget for anything that I'm doing. Um, and to, to run the event there and then not be able to have the web feed. I'm sure that was difficult.
2: It it was extremely frustrating for me. You know, it's one of those things that, uh, that was one of those fine lines where you have to make a decision, whether you pull the trigger on the event or not. It was already a loss making event for us, but I felt that it was important for the integrity of the tour to, to be back in Tahiti. Um, at that point probably would have been better not to go back although you know I think the athletes were pretty stoked to be back there um, you know and, and then you know I was planning we were trying to figure out how we could make it work uh, but you know the logistical challenges obviously of being you know almost half a mile out to sea uh, with all the different wireless and op- fiber optic uh, complications that you have does make it more complicated and requires even more budget so it got to the point where we could have tried to miss you know put together something but it would have been substandard and pretty feeble feed. And for me, there's nothing I hate more than putting out a substandard product that is pretty unwatchable. Um, so, you know, we've kind of focused more on uh, the TV production for that event. It wasn't ideal. Uh, moving forward, that's certainly not something that we're going to look at doing. Um, you know, we, we're trying to look at the tour as a healthy mix of iconic locations such as Sunset and Tahiti and, and those kind of venues. Um, together with mass market venues like Japan, the U.S. and and, and Europe. So, you know, and, and but that being said, yes, internet's incredibly uh, important, and nowadays it's getting easier
1: and easier, thankfully. The um, can you talk to the growth within the racing side of what you're doing there with the Stand Up World Series versus the surfing side, and and how much effort has been required on on both sides? To, to perpetuate the growth that you've had.
2: Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, for me the the surfing side has has always been super important to the integrity of the sport and to the core of the sport because at the end of the day it started off as a surf riding sport. Um, and you know, I feel the thing that made stand up paddling grow so quickly was that, you know, the fact that it is part of the surfing family and 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 you know, people can it's the most accessible form of surfing you could ever have. You know, and I think that's the most beautiful thing about our sport, quite frankly. And, you know, it's what differentiates ourselves from kayaking and canoeing and all these other kind of paddle sports um, is that it's a surf sport. So, you know, that's been incredibly important to me. And, and many people have asked me over the years, you know, why, you know, why, you, you know, you should just focus on the racing as may more potential for growth. But ironically, with the way the sport is right now, uh, the industry stats I saw the other day. Uh, stating number of surfboards sold compared, I mean, stand up surfboards sold compared to number of raceboards sold, it was staggering and the surfboards way outweighed the raceboards. Uh, and certainly surf raceboards, you know, the amount that was sold at less than full price was pretty staggering as well. Um, so I think it's, it's a transition time uh, in the sport and for me, both sides are equally important. There's no doubt that the accessibility and growth potential of racing is a lot easier to manage Um, As well as being in line with our vision of bringing surfing to major mass markets Uh, So, you know, for example, we're in Tokyo this year for our race. We're in um, You know, we're in Cannes in the south of France We're in venues where we can legitimately attract tens of thousands of people and 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 welcome new people into the sport Which I think is critical but then at the top end there still needs to be that dynamic exciting Sunset Beach Yeah, surfing locations and, uh, you know, even the mass market surfing locations like California. You know, I mean, there's there's no doubt that there needs to be a presence uh, for both sides of the sport. So that was a long winded winded way of saying that, uh, you know, I view both of them equally as important. There's no doubt that the commercial model and growth potential of racing opens up more doors. But I also think something very significant needs to happen in the development of how we do that over the next few years. And that's something we're very focused on. You know, racing needs to change, it's stagnating and it's it's you know, for a sport that's so inclusive, it's becoming incredibly exclusive with these radically cumbersome boards and expensive boards you can't put anywhere and, and take anywhere. Um, you know, and that's something that needs to change.
1: Well it also seems like the sport of racing is diverging between uh like the more intense races like with what you just did with the heavy water with Red Bull, and then yeah. your every guy can participate long distance type race. Um, how how what was the success of the Red Bull race? Is that a model that's going to continue?
2: Um, the Red Bull race is a one-off for us. Um,
1: yeah. You know, it's a unique race. It, it,
2: it you know, it's a hugely complicated race, dealing with the city and, and six different departments, and uh, just the challenges of the race are quite quite significant. Um, you know, I, I think it, it can be thrilling. It, it's it's it, you know, it was a, a proof of concept year. Now we've kind of really defined what we need to do and where we need to take it. So, that, you know, there'll be a lot of uh, kind of amendments to what we did and how we put it together, uh, which I think will be really great for the sport. Um, you know, but as far as, as racing is concerned as a whole, you know, some of the locations that provide that really dynamic, exciting racing, Maui is a, a great venue. You know, this year, this last event we did there was phenomenal in terms of, you know, a lot of the guys say it was the most exciting racing they'd ever done. Um, you know, those kind of venues give it naturally because you have surf. Um, but what we're doing with with the racing for the future is, you know, we're we're turning it up on its head as far as the pro level competition is concerned. With uh, starting ramps, it's a twenty foot ramp with starting blocks that has guys essentially dropping into a wave for the start. Uh, we have chicanes, we have all kinds of elements. We're building into courses to make it much more of a kind of supercross of, of stand up paddling than uh, just straight line racing.
1: In thinking about racing and surfing together, I have to think that. Right now, you have the basically the best athletes being able to be quite competitive at both. So there's, I guess, more racers who don't surf than surfers who don't race at this point. I think that in the future, you're going to see those peer groups separate even more as you've had more time for athletes to specialize. Uh, and the guy who's winning the world championship on both sides, I think is going to be a thing of the past soon. Do you think that's going to happen as well?
2: Uh, potentially, but in, in a sense, not if I have anything to do with it, not <laughs> in a bad way, but no, I mean, you know, the, the uh, you know, what I feel is um, that, you know, stand-up paddling is a board sport as well. Uh, we're on, we're on the periphery of people standing up and the amount of unforced errors across the event just
1: not I can't hear you right now, Tristan. Your mic sounds like it went underwater.
2: Sorry, you got me still?
1: Yeah, no, I got you, got you back. Me. Just start start yeah, saying sorry. that over again.
2: No, I was just going to say, I mean, um, you know, I, I feel that uh, stand-up paddling is a board sport as well as a paddle sport. And I feel the racing direction right now is uh, it's, a li- it's on a little bit of a dangerous course, in my opinion, um, because, because it's becoming quite elitist, quite niche, uh, riding these cumbersome boards that are more like canoes than, than stand-up boards. And people are paddling in a straight line, and when they turn around corners, it, it kind of looks almost ridiculous, you know. And the top guys have got good at, you know, doing slam turns and what have you. But the amount of unforced errors on a course by even the world's best is is quite shocking, you know. And I think it disqualifies the sport to some extent, you know. So what I'm I'm really working to do is, you know, I think there's there's space for everything in a sport, you know, especially as a sport as diverse as stand-up paddling. But, you know, at the most public, uh, mediatized level, is to create a board sport that that essentially is surfing on flat water that requires board skill as well as paddle, paddle skill and endurance. Um, and so, you know, being able to, to maneuver boards around a course successfully will be as important as being able to have a solid paddle stroke.
1: And you've seen the best surfers win those rates, like the Mo winning of uh, the Pyatt River games. And so, so yeah, that's a model that, that seems to work.
2: Exactly. And I think at the end of the day, You know the reason why the likes of Mo, Kai, Connor, Zane do so well across both is because you know they have a phenomenal talent uh, to ride boards, you know, and they have a phenomenal talent talent to read the ocean. And you know, at the end of the day, no race, you know, for the most part, is held on like a controlled course in the sense of you know, it's not like stepping on a rowing machine and starting to paddle. There may be guys who have a better paddle stroke or a more efficient paddle stroke, but when it comes to navigating stretches of water and and maneuvering boards around a course and and tactics you know these guys are in a very good position because they have such a wealth of experience from all their years in the ocean surfing and windsurfing and doing all the different sports so you know i think definitely there'll be more specializing i think you know we saw it you know not wanting to revert always back to windsurfing because i was a windsurfer but um you know we did see that separation in windsurfing where you know once the overall world title was a really significant thing whereas now everybody's so specialized that you either focus on one or the other. I think there's going to be an element of that, and you know. But at the same time, I do think the likes of Mo, uh, the likes of you know Connor, Kai, Zane, you know, they're they're all double threats. Ben Roediger is another one who's mm-hmm. you know he's becoming a phenomenal racer. And you know, yes, his strengths at the moment are in downwind where it's reading bump and that kind of stuff. Um, but he's you know, with some training and direction, those guys you can learn that stuff. Whereas the other stuff is from 20 years of doing just what they've been doing every day. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I definitely see your point there. But I would also say that as the prize purses get better, it becomes more prestigious. Winning is going to be more important. And you're going to see people specialize and spend the vast majority of their time in one discipline so that they can get those wins because it's going to be better to win one than to to place in the middle and two.
2: Uh, It's inevitable. And, you know, guys like Michael Booth coming in and, you know, he's an animal. I mean, the guy's a phenomenal paddler. And You know, once he trains to do more of the sprint stuff, he's going to become an animal in that too. So I I would completely agree, but I would also, you know, I guess what I'm saying is I I think what I want to do is make it more of a board sport, but at the same time, all these guys are learning, you know, and the sports evolving with them. So as you said, as they hone the talents, it is going to become more specialized, I'm sure, but I don't think it'll ever be where those guys won't be significant in both.
1: Well, and from a business promotion standpoint, I mean, if you look at, say, the UFC, UFC floundered for years they come out with the ultimate fighter. They build personalities within the sport. And then the sport takes off because there are people that you're cheering for and that you associate with and align with. That's going to become a big part of, you know, any, any sport. And are, are you thinking about ways in which you can build the personal brands of the athletes with, within, uh, the world tour? Cause that's going to really, you know, help the sport take off. That was kind of the idea with the progression project that we did too, is, you know, to showcase these guys and their element and well, help us that way.
2: Well, absolutely. And, you know, that's that was really my case study when I even started the Waterman League. You know, once you get into the kind of treadmill that I've been on of, of building this thing, you know, it's 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 hard to keep a laser focus on that. Uh, but now we have the luxury of building a team and, you know, we have an office in Hong Kong, an office in California, and us over here in Hawaii. I can actually pull more focus and over, oversee more of the development of that concept of building characters and and using the media to really uh, Tell much more of a story than just an event result. You know, that's always been my philosophy because if people don't understand it They generally aren't interested, but if they get a personal connection, they suddenly become extremely interested and you know the UFC is a perfect example of that and and you know, we're definitely looking carefully at that and and uh, You know a lot of the elements that we're doing for example in the World Series where we we're sort of creating an elite top 24 with eight wild cards you know, uh, every jersey is personalized with their names and their their countries and everything else on it. We're building profile pages with the new site that'll get launched next year um, that will really be very interactive. It'll have Instagram feeds. It'll have all kinds of stuff. And, and really working with the athletes uh, to tell their stories through their, you know, own output, but it's kind of flowing through us so that there's a really mainstream kind of impact through it all.
1: Yeah. And then going back to the UFC reference, I, a guy that I, I know from down here named brian is the head of the media company that has done uh the the vast majority of the filming for the ufc over the last few years and one of our last conversations he was talking about how impactful starting to do those youtube videos ahead of the fights were, where they follow the fighters around embedded that's what they're called i was trying to Trying to think yes. of that. So the embedded. So the UFC embedded have been massive for their pay per views and the whole thing because it's just people connecting and identifying and, and all of that. So maybe um, that's another way that you guys could, could look at doing things, you know, um, short webisodes and, and follow that model a little bit more closely.
2: No, absolutely. That's exactly what we're planning. And we have our production house here just really focused on how we can really maximize all the output of content, how we can create a lot more anticipation of events and build up to events. And even during the live webcast to be able to have content to, to go in and out of and, and you know really create much more of a dynamic and, and user-friendly experience.
1: All right, let's, let's take a step back for a little bit and walk us through. Don't spend a lot of time here, but walk us through your experience within uh, windsurfing. And then I want to talk, I want to spend a little bit more time on when you saw, uh, when you fell in love with stand-up paddle surfing, and then when you saw the opportunity. So that's, that's a long question there, but this, I, this is a story that I don't know, so I'm interested in it.
2: Okay, we're well, right on. Well, I mean, it really stems back to, to my childhood, actually. I mean, I, you know, I grew up very much in the water. My family, fortunately, was, we were able to get to the water quite a bit, even though I grew up in miserable England. <laughs> it's a great country, by the way, but it's just, you know, the weather's a bit crappy. Um, but, uh, but no, I was always, you know, obsessed with swimming. Uh, I started sailing boats when I was four years old. Um, I was on my first windsurfer when I was like two or three years old. Actually, my dad had a, one of the original windsurfer class, uh, windsurfers and, um, you know, but I was really into boat sailing and, and swimming. And, and when I got to kind of double figures around 10 or 11, uh, we went up to go see a, uh, a boat demonstration because I was looking at transitioning into another class of boat. Um, and it was too windy for the boats to go out and it was howling howling winds and, and windsurfers are flying up and down and I, I was just like man, I need to be doing that um, So that's sort of where I fell in love with windsurfing and, and it became a an overwhelming passion for me through my through my teens I I was you know professional when I was still at school and sponsored and, and competing uh, Across the globe actually through my mid to late teens um, You know I managed to win British and European titles and, and got into the top five in the world at one stage and um, on the world tour, but, uh, you know, that was, you know, definitely a major part of my life and and still is a great passion of mine. Um, but one thing I've always maintained through it all is I, I, I love the, you know, being able to do all aspects of it, you know, I'm, you know, Kai Lenny's obviously personifies the idea of a, a modern day waterman of, of being just phenomenal across everything. Uh, but I, in my very small way, you know, enjoy every aspect of ocean sports. I've always surfed. Uh, I've always longboarded. Uh, I love windsurfing. And uh, then this, you know, actually funnily enough, I dedicated myself to longboarding one winter uh, in Maui and literally the next season stand up paddling started kind of coming to the fore. And it was really interesting because I learned to ride big boards properly. And uh, suddenly there were stand up boards and I'm a heavier guy and, and kind of heavier footed guy, too. So it kind of really suited me for surfing. Uh, and so I quickly got hooked into it and 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 saw the diversity of it. You know, just the fact that guys could be you know, paddling down the coast, uh, having fun doing downwind runs the fact that it came to life when it was small, tiny waves where a shoreboard really felt crappy, you know, and you're kind of pumping to even get any kind of turns. Uh, and then in the big wave environment, to, you know, just the perspective you have, the ability to, you know, adapt and anticipate situations. Uh, you know, and the fact you're already standing up in really difficult situations when, you know, when you're, when you're kind of navigating in big surf. I, I saw this, like, amazing diversity of a sport. Uh, and then you know and that was just a personal experience and then I took a step back and you know I was living in Kauai at the time and uh, You know, I'd see there was some 80 year old couple paddling down the river in Honolulu, You know and then there was little kids playing on the board in 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 Hanalei Bay, you know And then I, I just kind of looked around me and I thought wow This is really a, an incredible application. There was so many women out there paddling around I thought this is one of the most diverse sports I've ever seen and and then I looked around even further and saw in Europe it's starting to take off a little bit and i saw that for the first time there was a lot more mixing between the sports traditionally you're you're either a shortboarder or you're a longboarder or you're a a windsurfer or a a canoe paddler and suddenly canoe paddlers were paddling windsurfers had something to do when there was no wind you know surfers thought when the waves that should do something and and that was a really you know interesting facet for me and uh so that was really where the light bulb went off to, you know, to say, look, what what's the opportunity of doing something? And you know, fortunately living here in Hawaii, it was sort of where it all started. Uh, and I was able to consult with a lot of the uncles over here uh, that I have respected and admired over the years, from Brian Kialana to Archie Kaleppa to, uh, you know, even Robbie Nash and, and all the guys over here that were kind of involved in the early days of stand-up paddling. And, and I said, what do you guys think if we would have, to, to, you know, to try to launch some, some some kind of? Initially, it was like some kind of. Uh, exhibition you know event to kind of change people's perception of what the sport is because at that time it was a cumbersome born that board that careered through the lineup that was about 11 feet long and nobody could turn uh, you know and I said what about if we created an event you know an event in Hawaii event in in Tahiti an event somewhere else and and they said we love it let's let's do it we're right behind you and so we kind of took the ball and ran with it we did an exhibition event and in, in uh, at Chopo and in, in 2009 and the reason we chose there was because i wanted to put it in the most what surfers traditional surfers would would class as the most extreme environment probably to put a stand-up board into uh you know and it really you know i created the right precedent for for launching into like the biggest ever contest at sunset beach where we had a giant sort of you know 12 to 15 foot surf and, and maxing out sunset so you know that's that's how it all kind of in one long dialogue came about um but funnily enough the Waterman League was actually launched uh as a kind of more comprehensive ocean sports organization originally. Um I produced an event back in two thousand seven called the Ocean Games. Um we produced it for for NBC and, and we had Jeep as a title partner and, and that event brought together shortboard surfing, longboard surfing, uh stand up surfing. It was one of the I think it was the first stand up event almost. I think there was this Kui Kiker event that was just coming about around then as well. But uh uh, and then it had windsurfing and kiting and canoe surfing and body surfing, you know, and the idea was this kind of multi-sports festival, uh, which was really, really well received and it was, you know, it was a super cool event, you know, and that's always kind of been the ethos of what I'm about of, you know, enjoying the ocean no matter what it throws at you. So, um, you know, but once we, once we had kind of launched this waterman league, uh, company, this opportunity to, to develop specifically in stand up, cause it was the first sport that legitimately connected the dots between all the sports. Uh, was a real opportunity, so you know that's that's when we kind of really dove in.
1: What's your professional background uh, before you started the Waterman League? Um,
2: well, I was uh, a professional windsurfer straight, well, still in school, and then straight out of school. I actually studied alongside uh, having a professional career. Um, so I studied languages and business at, at university in in England, um, but meanwhile I was competing on the world tour and, and, and traveling um, pretty much constantly. Uh, and then uh, towards the latter part of my career, I was a little disillusioned with with what was going on in windsurfing, which unfortunately has been a continued continued downtrend uh, since that time. Um, but you know it was not that many events in in really uh, average locations, and and it was a frustrating moment for the sport, I think. And you know I sort of started to work on some media project uh, projects that would sort of revamp what the sport would look like, and and was involved also across surfing and and, and various other sports in that capacity. Um, so we, I started creating original media. With, you know, I did shows with MTV Europe. I did shows with uh, various different broadcast networks around the globe. Um, did a lot of stuff with uh, what was it called? World of Sport and, and various different shows. Um, but I was sort of in this co-producer or producer role, uh, developing storylines to to kind of bring what is a core sport that not that many people understand to a realm that people could actually understand and, and connect with characters and. And really admire and, and love and, and kind of uh, chase after that culture. So that was where I got to, and then that led to uh, the idea that you know the best way to create stories is to create uh, events that you can create stories about. We uh, I set up a, an initial company to develop a, a reality TV project um, back in 2004, uh, and we produced a, a pilot episode which featured on wind, it focused on windsurfing. The idea was to kind of diversify across all the different sports. But uh, we did a windsurfing episode in Mexico. Uh, We took eight of the world's best into a self-judged format with a confession booth. Uh, We lived together in each other's (laughs) shoes for 10 days. And um, it was a really cool project, really interesting project, and I learned a lot. And we produced a full-scale pilot, uh, which we kind of toted around for for a few years. But it was a a challenging time in the TV world at that point because a number of the kind of Hollywood-style surf uh, shows had really not been successful. Uh, so it was a tough sell, um, but that kind of led me to kind of develop more events that led to the Ocean Games, and then you know, and then that led to the launch of the Waterman League. So, so it's I, I've I've definitely been more of an entrepreneurial background as far as my business pursuits are concerned, um, and just really developing uh, new visions for for what is possible in the space we're in. Uh,
1: you've touched on the windsurfing model a few times. What what's been the down? I mean, I hate it when people compare paddle surfing to windsurfing, but where do they differ in your mind? And what's the downfall? What has been the downfall of windsurfing?
2: Well, I think they they really differ in a lot of ways. I think the only similarities that can be drawn is the nature of the industry. You know, you look at surfing and, uh, you know, 80% of surfers buy custom boards and there hasn't really developed that kind of surfboard industry. You know, it's it's basically every man for himself. Um, whereas in, in windsurfing, the industry was more, I mean, the actual sport was more or less driven by industry which has been somewhat the same for for stand-up paddling uh because you get you're getting a line of production boards that are made in china and then distributed around the world so that you know that creates a different kind of business model than surfing that was traditionally more kind of apparel driven in terms of you know the actual money coming into the sport Um, so i think that's where the similarity is Um, but also some of the problems faced are similar in the sense of you know once a sport develops it goes in one direction and everybody chases that direction. And, uh, you know, I think what's always needed in a sport is a clear driving force that is is pushing it in a healthy direction. And sometimes if, if a sport gets off course, it can be a dangerous mode. Uh, because what happened in windsurfing in the kind of last 20 years, they've rectified it over the, I would say, probably the last 10 years, but it's probably a little bit late, is, uh, you know, everybody was so careful to not lose their existing market that was getting older and older rather than thinking how to kind of Rejuvenate the sport and, and make it more appealing to young people to get into. Um, and, you know, and that's that's a little bit my concern in a very early stage right now with stand-up paddling. Where you know, I've, I've mentioned it a couple of times about racing, where you know, I, I feel the trend is 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 kind of it's 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 stagnating a little bit the the racing scene. And and we've made it for a sport that's just so inclusive. We made it so, like quite exclusive with the price of the boards, the, the cumbersome nature of the boards, how big they are, and how fragile they are, and the fact you can't go anywhere with them. You know, and if you're going to be into the sport now, you know, it wasn't geographically limited, but now you've got to have a house, a garage, a truck. You've got to have all these things to be able to go stand-up paddling, which can really limit somebody's participation. Um, so, you know, those are some of the, the elements I've seen. But uh, but going back to windsurfing, I mean, you know, the, the barriers for windsurfing was huge compared to stand-up paddling because, you know, you're so uh, restricted by the conditions, you know, in the sense of um, – you know if there's no you know if you're into wave saving like i was i wasn't into any other aspect of the sport not only do you need waves you need wind um and that's that's a tricky combination um you know and events sometimes just don't happen um and then you need a lot of equipment so you know it might be 10 knot wind and you got a big sail and a big board but if it's 25 knots you can't even go windsurfing unless you've got a whole another set of equipment so you know there's a price point that becomes really unattainable unattainable because um, you need so much gear, you know, you have that same issue of like now you've got this van load of equipment You've got to drive around everywhere chasing wind. Sometimes you go places. It doesn't even happen. So for people who have a normal life and uh, Work, you know Monday to Friday the chances of the weekend being good are small So are they really going to invest all their hard-earned money into to buying a whole load of equipment for for maybe, you know, once every month? Um, so I think you know, that's the
1: challenge What misconceptions did you have when you started? Uh, the stand-up world tour world series, were you completely off about anything? Or or do you think that um, you had a pretty good idea of how things would unfold?
2: You know, I don't think I... I was extremely excited, and I didn't realize as it was happening, but, you know, as I took a step back after the first couple of years, to see how what we created uh, supercharged the evolution of the sport was very exciting. Um, You know, I I remember having a pre-event meeting at the first event at Sunset, and there was discussions of having a nine-foot board minimum. You know, I mean, g- <laughs> nowadays people would laugh because that's like having a gun, uh, you know, and that's going to be the minimum size of your board. So, you know, it's been quite interesting to see that. I was always wanting to keep it really open-minded because I was considering that the sport could go anywhere. Um, you know, there was a guy called Kainoa Beaupre at the beginning of the sport that was riding a six ten, um, but it wasn't really working. You know, so it still looked like the it was just kind of like a round dish um and so it still looked like the the bigger boards were working better and there was more of a kind of longboard the guys leading the sport like Bonga Perkins and Akolo Kalama and uh you know even to a certain extent Brian Kilaner and all those guys they were they were much more riding traditional longboard style shapes but within 12 months of running the world tour the sport had changed like night and day and within 24 months you know the performance level of the sport was insane you know, when we when I look back and I see Kai pulling into that barrel in Tahiti in 2011, and it, it, it's mind-boggling. So, so you know, I, I I don't think we were off. I think, uh, you know, if I could do it all over again, I would like to start it with I would have liked to have started with a, you know some startup capital and really be able to build it uh, aggressively with a full team. Um, but you know, we've learned a lot through through grinding through it and learning all aspects of everything that can go right, but everything that can go wrong too.
1: Yeah, I think when you look at stand-up as an an industry and and follow its trajectory, you see, I think, a lot of the windsurf companies jumped and thought stand-up was going to be a saving grace for them, and then you saw all this, everyone was hyping stand-up as the next biggest sport in the world, and you saw, you know, massive injection of capital, and, uh, but then, you've seen, really, in the last two years, um, and I, I hear about it from board manufacturers i hear about it from the athletes within the sport uh and from just the fans of the sport too this consolidation that's happening and it's kind of coming back i feel like there was a big stand-up bubble i feel like the momentum that happened you know three four five years ago was not real um it was like the government printing cash and you see in the stock market go up but now i feel like the growth that's happening is very organic because i see it on a daily basis the amount of emails that i'm getting the uh excitement about the film that we released and the whole thing and so now i actually believe that we're in a we're, we're in a place of, of sustainable growth to where the sport actually has legs they're they're real legs and i think we'll see a, a solid not a vertical growth trajectory like we had before but a solid growth trajectory over the next three to five years and hopefully at the end of that period of time have this sustainable sport uh your model of a world tour hopefully working and hopefully athletes actually being able to you know live off of uh, off of the sport which is, is is going to become necessary as the sport progresses there needs to be enough sponsorship dollars to get these guys paid get them around the world so that they can focus on the sport they can focus on their craft and being the best paddle surfer they can which is going to help perpetuate the sport in the in the future do you think that uh trajectory of what i just stated is is accurate or do you see it a different way
2: no, I, I'd say it was very accurate. I think, it, you know, um, you know, I did not wanted to make that comparison to windsurfing again, but, you know, in the beginning of windsurfing, it was suddenly the big thing in the 80s. And there was a huge bubble there where a million brands started appearing, making boards, uh, you know, sales, booms, at every aspect of, of windsurfing equipment. And then there's that moment where, you know, the sport's still growing, but it's kind of contracting a little bit because it's not sustainable to have 200 brands. Uh, and you end up getting a core set of brands that can can really survive have a good quality product and put it out there Um, the difficulty that stand-up faces is uh, that it's so accessible and so easy to make a board now uh, that there's there's a there's a massive market and a massive part of that growth in the sport now which is the once every once in a while user who goes into Costco and buys the Jimmy sticks or whatever it is in Costco and just does it a couple times and that's it And, and essentially they don't they don't necessarily get hooked in the sport where you know, being a part of it and living and breathing stand-up paddling is—it's not even on their radar. Um, you know, and I think, to your point, I think there is that—that that moment now where there's kind of a more sustainable, organic growth potential. Um, but essentially, what we're looking to do is to come in and connect the dot between that one-time user and the avid enthusiast, because the avid enthusiast is what's going to really grow the sport and allow the industries to thrive and allow you know, the, the athletes to be able to be worthy of the dollars that the brands are giving them, um, you know, connecting those dots is critical. And, and, you know, our, our strategy sort of, it's a multi-layered strategy from top to bottom in the sense of, you know, the very top level, we want to provide a legitimate platform for the world's best, create a really exciting product from a media and an on site perspective that people can really grasp, understand, and, and, you know, they actually want to come and watch because it's, exciting to watch and create characters and stars in the sport so you know really elevating these guys profiles so that uh, you know people can actually connect with them like we discussed with that ufc model um, but then creating a second layer of competition that's sort of like a world qualifying level of competition that allows an entry point for people coming into the sport and and really wanting to start competing at a top level and then you know the straight amateur level participation where we make it a lot funner you know make uh formats that much more fun for people to get involved with they don't have to be the guy who's going to be dedicated wanting to do the 30 mile grind on a or that needs to have the latest sport in order to compete it's, it's much more the spirit of fun and getting people engaged with the sport so that if they come in, in the morning and do their team race with all their friends that they've been training for for a couple for a couple months and then they can sit back and watch the pros in action in the afternoon or you know at a surf event the same kind of deal they can come down and maybe take part in a fun kind of amateur contest and then sit back and watch the pros in action. That's really the, you know, that connection between the base user and the, and the top level professional athlete that will create a commercial model that can work. Um, because their stature as professional athletes means something to the world and that brings value to the brands. And now the brands are actually selling boards because of their association with the athlete.
1: What I don't hear a lot of from folks in the industry is any outreach programs to, bring surfers into the sport of stand-up paddle surfing is that any is that do you spend any time thinking about that
2: you know i think that's something that'll happen organically i think you know i don't think uh for me i'm not trying to to poach surfers to come into to our sport necessarily (laughs) you know i think if 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 they see it in the way that we show it i believe they will be attracted to it organically You know, my target market's going a lot further than that because I think the opportunity that we have is to attract a much broader target market than than what surfing has. You know, and in that respect, I feel like the commercial model is a lot more viable for stand-up paddling than it is for surfing because your user base in surfing is so much more limited, uh, and it's such an untouchable thing for most people um, that it's it's a tough you know it's a tough thing to bite off. Um, But for us, we we have a connection point that's that's much more real.
1: I agree with you from a commercial perspective, but from a talent pool perspective, all the best paddle surfers in the world are incredible surfers. Uh, and you can't deny, I think that's a link that gets left out a whole lot. You know, if you look at Mo, Kai, Okai, Zane, you put them on a shortboard and they all kill it. Giorgio, he's a QS surfer. Um, and so there is that overlap, especially in the talent pool. And if you want the sport of stand-up to be showcased at its highest and best level, I think that bringing and... Uh, sh- Showcasing two and then bringing in uh, incredible surfers will will expedite the growth rate for uh, performance on the tour.
2: I, I hear what you're saying. I I mean I agree with you to some extent. But all the you know Jojo's probably the one who ha- hasn't necessarily come from the multiple tour background. He's more coming the tour tour background. But what he's Grown up in Hawaii has definitely had a broader kind of perspective on on ways of riding. Um, you know, we've had a lot of pro surfers participate in our events, from Grant Baker to uh, Jamie O'Brien to Kyla Alexander to Makua Rothman. To you know, obviously mostly here in Hawaii, uh, and there is potential. Some of them get it, uh, some of them don't. But I think it's one of those things where, you know, the more that uh, we showcase the best of stand up paddling at the very top level, that will happen naturally. You know guys will naturally start uh, wanting to get into it and and when I look at the state of the sport right now and the youth coming into it and the, and the amount they rip and the amount of young talent there is I'm, I'm pretty blown away you know we we hold our kids event at Turtle Bay or we did uh, earlier this year and and you know there's a seven-year-old kid that was absolutely ripping there was an 11 year old who was doing legitimate rail turns like you know <laughs> it, it was super impressive so you know I, I think uh, making it legitimate in uh, a surfer's eye is key you know and I think you know guys like Kai and Zane definitely a, a, a excellent uh, vehicles for really promoting that legitimacy in a, in a mainstream audience um, but I, I don't think we sh- you know we're, we're a sport in our own right and people who choose to jump in and accelerate will, will choose to do so you know I, I don't I don't know necessarily how we could go you know I don't think there's like a recruiting role to go in there to try bringing surfers but I think it's the guys who have a broader perspective on how to ride in the ocean will naturally be attracted to stand-up paddling, and those are the guys that generally excel.
1: Here in Costa Rica, they run the stand-up uh, surfing contests as a part of the national circuit, and so along with the shortboarding events. right? And that's been great for intermingling between sports. you know. And I don't even really look at them as separate sports. A lot of the guys who compete in stand-up compete shortboard and longboard. Same right. days. Uh, that might be a model, and it might actually help in some ways to share costs for events to be able to you, use infrastructure of surf events that are already happening. And then you are showcasing the sport of that paddle surfing along with the sport of surfing, and uh, you have infrastructure already in place for events. Is that something you've ever thought about?
2: Absolutely, and we've been uh, in discussions with a large group about uh, doing exactly that. Uh, bringing you know bringing sports together and and you know at the at the end of it like I explained it a little earlier but with the the kind of original mission kind of statement for the Waterman League was to to kind of create a a collective of, of ocean sports together because um, I believe that you know that unity only creates you know more progression and growth for 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 everybody. Um, so, you know, I think that, uh, we're looking at it in particular in Japan, we're looking at, uh, we're looking at it in, in various other regions where there's an opportunity to create multi-sport events, uh, to create waterman uh, disciplines. We've been looking to do that for a few years, actually, even here in Hawaii, just cause there's such a multi-sports culture here. Um, but yeah, that's definitely at the heart of what we'd like to do. And I do believe by grouping those sports together, you're exposing it to different audiences and, and people open their minds. I mean, even just when we were at Huntington. You know, people always said about how the attitude was bad at Huntington or whatever, but I actually surfed so many times out of Huntington, and I think people were more, you know, it was, because when, the, it was when the World Tour was in town, but uh, they were kind of blown away with the level of the guys and what they're doing, and they had no idea that stand-up battling could be like that. So, yeah, I do think there's a lot of benefit from, from being able to showcase the sport in that and marry the two together, and, and you know, whether it's a, a pooling of resources or not, I think uh, the strategy to, to bring sports together is a smart one.
1: All right, so let's enter our last area of discussion here. I want to know about you as a surfer. What are you riding? What kind of boards, what do you what kind of size boards? Um, how do you define yourself as a surfer? You
2: know, I'm I'm definitely uh, you know, I like I said I've always surfed all kinds of boards, but I I'm passionate about stand up surfing. It's my favorite form of surfing and I'm I'm a better stand up surfer than I am a shortboard surfer for sure. Um and longboard surfer. Um you know, and, and for me, my favorite part of the sport is is very much surfing. I, I I'm not a big distance paddler. I've done quite a bit of it, and I I enjoy it. But I, you know, for me, riding uh, surfing is is my passion in life. And I I'm so busy that when I have a moment, I'm going to go surf. Um, so you know, as far as boards I ride, uh, I've been getting really into uh, in this in the small wave time of year and and when the conditions are subpar. Uh, I've been riding a lot of ten foot um, kind of standard longboard shape. Uh, and I'm 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 really looking actually to develop something with Pat Rawson on uh, you know kind of a progressive longboard design. A little bit like what Colin Phillips has been doing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know being a heavier guy, um being able to ride a bigger board, I I really enjoy the glide and flow of a of a ten foot board and, and to ride that progressively as opposed to kind of being on a twitchy shortboard in, in kind of crappy ways. So that's sort of been my weapon of choice over the summertime. But when it comes to the wintertime you know, my standard go-to board's in 8.0. Um, I do have a 7.7 I use uh, for smaller, kind of, you know, more sectiony y waves. Um, but I like the 8.0 length. I find that, you know, it draws really nice lines. Uh, you know, you can go super vert on it, and, and it feels really good. And then I have an 8.10 kind of step-up kind of board that I use at Sunset and, uh, and Bigger Surf. And then I have a, an old gun that I use at the uh, Phantoms and, and Big Wave kinda what so. kind of conditions.
1: What kind of volumes do you go down to?
2: Um, I'm probably down around the 92 or 94 liters. Um, you know, I'm, I'm about, um, 196 pounds. So yeah, somewhere around that. So I'm quite heavy, but, um, you know, 90 around the 94, 93, 92 is like, it's, it's just underwater on the small board for me, uh, more or less. But that's, that's still, you know, it surfs well, I can paddle around and, and, you know,
1: it's fine still. What about paddles? What do you use for paddles? Where do you like to cut them?
2: Um, I use whatever's <laughs> um, uh, you know I mean as far as length I've definitely gone shorter over the last few years um that's been an interesting progression for me like I, I borrowed a small paddle from a friend and I ended up going wow this is way better um so that's been an interesting one for me um you know even in bigger surf because then I, I remember when I first got the shorter paddle I, I'd go out and big surf and be on a kind of floaty aboard uh and I feel all awkward with the short paddle, whereas now it feels normal, and I went back to my longer paddle and I really didn't like it as much so I've definitely gone shorter it's just head high probably um for me i'm six six for one so i don't I don't even know what the length is I do it by sight rather than, <laughs> <laughs> rather than length I'm not the most technical guy as you can tell um but um but no i mean i i definitely uh I've used all the rare boards but i I started uh working with Pat Rawson on some some Custom boards, and and you know, I've just really been loving the the flow that those boards have,
1: and and how well they work. So. Excellent. I th- I think Pat and I are going to be doing a, a show slash project. I did one with Kurt McGinty from L41. I've done them with Colin before, but where we chat a bit and then design a board and then surf it and chat about it again. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that with Pat because he's well, an incredible shaper.
2: He's an incredible shaper. He's got a wealth of experience and and a wealth of stories. So.
1: Um, so yeah, he's definitely, uh, he's a good one to do that with. That's how this whole podcast started is I just wanted to talk to Pat.
2: Uh, Pat's a classic and, um, yeah, he's a, he's a, mind, he's a, a mine of information or a mountain of information.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know if you heard that, but that's how this whole podcast started is I just wanted to talk to Pat about what he was shaping for Mo and I was like, he's probably not just going to talk to me for as in, as in depth as I wanted the conversation to be. Cause right. I geek out on all the technical little details. And so I had a buddy at standup journal. I called him and was like, Hey, if I can talk to Pat, um, and I can record it, will you guys run it so I can tell him it's going to be run? And they were like, sure. And so that was the, uh, the first episode of the podcast. That's awesome.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I know I'm, uh, yeah, I've been, I've used all kinds of boards. I've used some Starboards. I've used Nash actually was, I was sponsored by Nash for many years windsurfing and I transitioned onto their stand-up boards, uh, you know, and they make great boards too. I just, you know, being out here in Hawaii, there's a certain board that really, definitely works well and really fits me. And and, you know, like I think like you, it's like when you watch Mo surf, you kind of you. you it <laughs> I love rail surfing. And, it's and tough to everything. argue with that. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, that's just always the kind of what I've even with windsurfing in every aspect. You know, I've always been into you know my passions, riding waves and 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 full rail turns is what I've built my whole. Life of surfing around, so that's why Pat's boards really made sense to me. And uh, as soon as I got on them, they made even more sense. So
1: Uh, I got a call from a from a guy who um, follows the site the other day, and he had some questions about boards, and he's going to get a custom board made. He's in Hawaii, and and he was asking me about all these different brands, and I was like, "Why aren't you getting a Rawson? Like you're right there, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, you know."
2: a lot of guys, like, you know, I mean, I think there's a there's a board for everyone, and that's been my experience in surfing. I think that, you know, I, I've actually got um. I've been using an Infinity in California because I don't want to travel back and forth with boards all the time, and um, Dave lent me a board a while back, and, it you know, that works great for California surf, too. So, you know, I think, you know, there's some great boards for every conditions. For my home breaks over here, it's definitely, definitely, you know, Pat Rawson lives in front of all my favorite ways, so he kind of knows
1: those ways pretty, pretty good. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look at my front porch slash bodega slash office. I I have pretty much every board you could think of in there. So (laughs) well, Tristan, thank you very much for coming on the show. It was great to catch up finally. And um, yeah, this was a great conversation. I appreciate it. I'm excited about the tour.
2: No, it's, exci- it's exciting times and, you know, we're being conservative, conservative, conservatively very optimistic about uh, where this is all headed. Um, you know, we're going to be releasing a lot more. You know, we want to revamp the world tour. We really want to push it forward. It's, you know, I don't want people to think it's just a racing focus. Yes, racing is a big part of it, but surfing a huge part of it too. Um, and for me, the two go, you know, hand in hand as we, as we build the world championship platform for the sport, you know. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm as committed to the surfing part as I've ever been. Excellent. Thanks, Tristan.
1: Awesome.
0: It's the Paddlewood Podcast.